I'd like to, um, I'd like for us to talk this morning a little bit about myths. Now, I'm, I know that word can be used in different ways. Um, there's a, like a, a genre of literature that is myth. doesn't mean something's, in that context, it doesn't mean it's untrue. It, it simply means a way to explain something for which you perhaps were not an eyewitness. We, we have creation or we have other kinds of myths. But again, it, that doesn't mean it's not true. I, I'm using it in the more colloquial way today, way perhaps you're familiar with. I'll give you a couple of examples. Are you, are you familiar with this, what we, I, I thought to be fact, it goes like this. We only use 10% of our brain. You ever heard that? Perhaps you've believed that. Perhaps, I will bet, I was telling somebody, I bet that if I were to go back over 30 years of sermons, I'll bet there's a sermon somewhere, because there's a good sermon in that, where we've only used 10% of our brains, because it was just a, a given fact. So I was doing a little bit of research on that. And it's absolutely not true. It's just absurd. Like one guy, one doctor said, well, here would be the example. It would be as if I said to you, oh, bad news, you have a brain tumor. But the good news is, it's on the 90% that you don't use, so it's fine. <laughs> that, that, that by weight, the, the, the brain is not that large an organ, but consumes like 20% of our energy, oxygen and sugars. And... So anyhow, I hope I didn't mess up your day if you've been really hanging on to the fact that you had hope for the 90% that wasn't being used. Um, another one, hair and nails continue to grow post-mortem. How many of you, do you remember this? Like, I've always, I, I don't, I, I've known that my whole life. Totally not true. When you're dead, nothing grows. But what they think happens is because your body sort of dehydrates, it would appear, I guess, to people that maybe something grew, and so that's where they think that myth came from. There, there's myths in every category of life. Um, there's historical myths. We all know them about Washington or about Columbus. There's myths that we've believed. Hey, there's, there's, just ask anybody. Just put out on your Facebook page, hey, my computer's acting funny. What should I do? You'll get some good advice and some less than good advice, but from sincere people. How to cook a turkey, how to treat a cold, it doesn't matter. Lots of myths. Yesterday, I was, um, I called my mom. I'm bragging. And, um, <laughs> and we're talking, and my mom says to me this, well, you know, your brother has a kidney infection. No, I said, oh, because he had told me, I talked to him a couple days before, that his, you know, his back was sore and hurting, and he went to the doctor. And this is the honest truth. This comes next. The doctor said he gave him a shot of antibiotic, but I know it was a steroid. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but... My brothers and I have a lifetime of trauma being treated by Dr. Bird. That's my mother's last name. Um, <laughs> like, she had no hesitation that she knew that the doctor lied to my brother and then gave him something that made no sense at all. 
But our whole life, we had to make adjustments based on Dr. Bird's diagnosis. When I was in junior high, I had to wear wool long underwear. Now, I had a few minutes at the bus stop, for sure. But if I didn't, I was going to get cancer. And so I had to sit in a hot junior high all day and come home with wool long underwear. I'm happy to say today I do not have cancer though, so I guess I should be more appreciative. Some myths are, you know, harmless, you know, um, and we grow out of them, Santa Claus or Easter bunnies or where we believe babies came from before fifth grade, but but some myths can be harmful. And a myth is something that we believe and we're not exactly sure why we believe it. We're not, we don't perhaps even know where we came up with the idea. We don't have a, have, a, have a sense of learning it necessarily. It just seems to have always been there. I think there's a sense in which some myth maybe has permeated human DNA. For instance, I, I meet very few people who do not have an inner sense, a myth that says we must earn God's approval, for example. That's a myth. Today, in this passage we're going to look at, we're going to explore some spiritual myths that if un, um, unaddressed, I think can be harmful. I'm going to read from the last letter written that we know of by the Apostle Paul. In this letter, he's writing to his, his dear friend, his protege. He calls him his son, I believe, even. Timothy. So it's Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. The first few verses are not what we're going to look at in depth today, but it's a good preface. It goes like this. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. Let me pause just for a second to say that I think everything else we're going to talk about is, is prefaced and colored by that sentence. And in simple language, it goes like this. Paul says, I know I'm going to get killed soon. Paul was under house arrest, or he was in prison at this time, actually. And um, he, he, he may have had some spiritual intuition that the end was near. That, that's very possible. But it's also just as likely that he had heard the guards talking. He had heard the court proceedings happening. That he knew that his execution was coming. And the, um, the time of his departure isn't because he's not feeling well. It's he knows he's going to be executed. And then he says these words. These words, I'm going to guess, perhaps are familiar to you. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, let me ask you, have You've perhaps heard those words before. Here's where perhaps you heard them. My guess is maybe at a funeral. 
You've heard those words. They're, very, they're nice words, and they're marvelous words that Paul writes. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Maybe you heard them at, a, at a, some kind of commencement or a charge to somebody who was maybe retiring or something like that. Marvelous words. The next part that we're going to be looking at today are less familiar to us. I, I know I've heard many times sermons or little talks that included verses 6 to 8, but I don't believe I have ever heard a message on the second part, the part we're going to look at. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I send Tychicus to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls especially the parchment. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through the message, so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Bible teaches us sometimes in a way that is what would be called maybe didactic. It, it sort of lays out, do this and do that. And sometimes that's a little more clear, but Sometimes the Bible teaches us by revealing to us the honest expression of what it means to be human and to be his. Paul does that here. In his vulnerability, he exposes some of the myths that I've held. Here's one I've held. That if you're spiritual, life always gets better. If you're spiritual, life will always get better. That there's a trajectory which includes this, this end time when you have finally become what you would consider successful or happy. Life always gets better if you're spiritual. One of the ways you can sort of tease this out a little bit is to wonder, am I successful? Maybe if that question plagues you a little bit. Here's how we often sort of detect or um, determine success. It's, am I popular? Paul records here in verse 16, he says, at my defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. probably would happen near the beginning of this legal proceedings that Paul was navigating. There would have been a, a moment where those who would testify to his character, to his innocence, 
could have stood and addressed the court. They could have been with him there. He could have shown by, by sort of volume that he was a good person, by all these people, look, who are standing up for me. I wonder if, in fact, he had anticipated that. He had preached to thousands of people. And already at this time in his life, thousands of people would trace their spiritual lineage back to him, that their coming to Jesus was directly related somehow to the Apostle Paul. They would have told that story. He thought, I'm guessing he thought, they might show up at court when they know my life is at stake about this. But this was the beginning of the Christian persecution. And they were afraid. And literally not one person was there that day at court. Not all that popular. Material. One of the ways I, I think that I've bought into this myth, life gets better, is when I preface something with I should be. I should be more financially secure. I should be more financially independent. And here's the Apostle Paul saying that he doesn't even have a coat to stay warm. He's cold. Life gets better with time is a myth. In fact, it's possible, while I wouldn't say it's uniformly always true, that often life gets more difficult the longer you walk with Jesus. Some ways it gets more complicated, and in some ways it becomes more painful. Uh, another myth we'll look at, one that, again, I can't tell you where I learned it exactly, but I know it's inside of me, and that is if you're spiritual, all you need is Jesus. Now, I, I want to be careful. I, I, of course, there's many things that only Jesus can do for us. And we'll talk in a moment in the next myth, but that Jesus, I'm not saying that Jesus is insufficient in any way. But this mentality that all I need is Jesus. I, I, if I just, if I could, if I were just more spiritual, in fact, another way to say it is if I were really spiritual, I wouldn't need anything. I wouldn't feel a need. How did, how did we come to that? Here's one possibility. One possibility is that for many of us, when we perhaps sort of mustered the courage one day to say out loud in a, in a small group or to some friends or in a Bible study, we, we mustered the courage to say, I'm lonely. Especially, I, if I can be honest, what I've noticed, especially if you're a, a single woman who expresses that you're lonely and you wish you were married. Or you say, I'm sad, or I'm scared. So imagine a moment you're in a, 
well, in a group of well-meaning brothers and sisters, and you share, I'm sad, or I'm scared, or I'm lonely, what is a possible outcome of that expression of need? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, lots of us have had that experience where somebody else's anxiety, I think, gets tweaked. And in sort of a, a, a spiritual Tourette, some verse comes out. <laughs> like, they don't mean to. They just, you know, they just get freaked. And so they, they and, and again, I, I, this isn't a, an exact science. But lots of us have had that experience. That if I share a need... I feel a little bit embarrassed because apparently I'm the only one. The reason I wanted to read verses six through eight and, and why I th they're marvelous verses, this, this idea of the victorious Paul, but putting that against Paul who says, I'm lonely, Timothy. I'm lonely. And I'm cold. And I'm, maybe I'm bored. I don't have my books. And I'd like to do some more writing. The idea in, in our culture that if I express a need, that is equivalent to being weak. And in our culture, there is very little, little upside to the expression an admission of being weak. Yet, as we read our story, it's the weak that manifests the grace of God. It is in weakness that God's power is perfected. Weakness is not wrong. Weakness is not sin. Weakness is baked into the 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 DNA of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You've heard me say before that Jesus made you really good at some things. That was by design. But by the same design, he made you weak at some things, insufficient. Why? So that you would experience interdependence, not codependence, but an interdependence. And Paul is expressing that. He's not teaching us, hey, now you need to, you know, here's how you honestly ask for it. He just does it. Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. If I'm spiritual, everything will be crystal clear. Another myth. Right and wrong will be obvious. Black and white. Here's my question. What's the deal here? Like, we have, I think we have very strict categories. For instance, we have the category of the victorious Christian. And verses 6 through 8 meet that perfectly. Paul describes that he's finished the race, he's kept the faith, he, he's in, he sounds like he's in good spirits. Later on he talks about that no one came to my defense, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. That, that sounds very victorious. That's what we like, that's a good, that's the victorious category. But then in, in the same paragraphs he says, I'm lonely and I'm cold. I think it takes no genius to read, he's a He's sad. He's struggling he, at some level with forgiveness. I, I, I'm not going to hold it against them, but you know that that was a process to come to that decision when he stood there expecting his friends and they didn't appear. 
That doesn't sound victorious to me. And I, I've been taught that it's one or the other. You've you got, you, you got to pick. It's a, it's a myth to believe that it's, it's all very clear and cut and dried. In other words, can you be both victorious and lonely? Can you be depressed and godly? Can you be, this is weird, can you be sad and have moments of joy? Can you be sick and yet still valuable? Yes. I think it's a myth that says I, I'm only this. God is enough and we're lonely. What contradictions do you live with that feel like contradictions? I use that in quotes. Does it have to do with your finances or your health or your relationships? Are there places where you're confused? That's not a sign of spiritual immaturity. Another myth, and this one is a little more difficult to maybe articulate, and I'll, I'll do my best, but it's this idea of spiritual evolution. Again, I'm, I'm not opposed to some ideas of spiritual evolution, but this one's perhaps similar to the, the first point, which is that only the, anything in front is good, anything behind is bad. All spiritual exploration is good would be this, fall under this category. And only good spirituality is what is next. That's complicated because we do have in our, in our scriptures, in our story, the, the story of growing and changing. I think that's always true. In fact, I think, um, I think all spiritual, all people are spiritually dynamic. But I'm not sure it's always necessarily good. Paul says this, he says, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now we don't know all that happened there. Paul has a perspective. Paul, Paul has a judgment on that. He sees this and he had a name for it. But here's what I think would perhaps be interesting and that would be if we could, uh, if we could interview Demas. Like if I could ask Demas, hey, hey Demas, um, what's the deal with you you know, leaving Paul and heading off to Thessalonica. What's, what's that story? In my experience, he would say something like this. Well, you know, I just got tired of the smallness of Paul's God. Paul's God was just so little. He, 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 he was, um, you know, always talking about, it was just Jesus this and Jesus that. And, and there's, there's so many other possibilities. And, uh, and, and, and you know, honestly, the, the whole idea of this needing to die I, 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 don't know, you know, I don't think that's such a, a, a great plan. And to be honest, 
I'm way happier now than I used to be. Almost 100% of my friends that have in some way in my estimation sort of left the faith have always 100% of the time said, but I'm way happier now. I have no defense for that. I think growing and changing spiritually includes both a newness, an an openness to to what's in, in front, to things I haven't experienced, to being willing to explore ideas that I haven't had. I'm not saying that it has to always fit an old paradigm. But I think what's in our story is also this idea of returning. There's so many places in the Bible that talks about return, going back. I think both are true. Once again, this idea that both are true and can be true. We have an openness to new ideas and paradigms, and we have an orthodoxy. We have a story that's long, and parts of it have been unchanged for generations, centuries. There's another one, which is that you always have tomorrow. Paul says, do your best to come to me quickly. And then in a part we didn't read, at the very, very end of the letter, he says, do your best to get here before winter. We don't know for sure, but most of the scholars seem to agree that most likely Timothy never made it. The reason Paul wants him to come before winter, one, I'm guessing he's cold and he wants his coat, but the other has to do with travel, that during the winter months, all the shipping shut down. It was too dangerous and winds unreliable and too heavy. And so whatever transportation possibilities he had from Ephesus to Rome was going to have to happen in the summer or fall. It's, it's we don't know, but since it's possible or even likely that Timothy didn't make it, I guess I would surmise that he might have had then some regret. That whatever kept him from going, that whatever seemed so important was probably prefaced with, well, I'll, I'll be able to go tomorrow. Or some version of tomorrow. I'm, I would feel fairly certain to proclaim that he intended to go. It's, it's not a strong point. I'm just saying in passing that there's a myth, though, that has to do with there's always tomorrow. There's always lots of time. I've had conversations with folks. Now, this, this conversation really only works if you're maybe over 35 or 40 with people who struggle with, you know, the veracity of the Scriptures. And I say, man, I, I understand that. But I said, hey, I know a Bible verse that I bet you would for sure say, yep, that's true. That's not a myth. And it's this one. It's in James, I think, where it says, life is but a vapor. I haven't met a person who's at 35 or 40 who doesn't resonate with that truth, that life is so much faster than we had ever imagined. I, nobody ever imagined that it would. My, my father-in-law just turned 90 or 91, I can't remember. 
I'm not that good a son-in-law. And, um, and he's such a delightful person. And, and I asked him, what does it feel like to be 90? He said, I didn't know I was going to get here this fast. It's weird, isn't it? Like, I, I know if you're at a certain age, like, I, I can't remember what I did yesterday or last week. But I have memories of when I was six that seem like I could completely recreate perfectly. I don't know how old you are, but do you remember your first kiss? Do you remember prom? Do you remember graduation? Just like the, the memory is, and it doesn't feel long ago, does it? The myth is that I've always got lots of time. For me, we all have maybe different places. Other than car maintenance, the place where I most apply this myth is hard conversations. Man, I will put off a hard conversation way, way too long. I keep thinking, well, I've got, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I don't know, well, maybe yours has to do with an apology or an offer of forgiveness or I don't know what it is. I, I, like, I like that the scriptures, our scriptures, the, these holy scriptures don't only include sort of the, uh, these pearls of wisdom that we would crochet but they also include authenticity and vulnerability. They would include, as we've often talked about, parts of stories that if we were editing it, I don't think we would include. <laughs> I think we'd leave those out, the, the parts that describe a human weakness. But that's what our story includes. I don't know which of these myths might be helpful to you to address Lord, thank you for your word and your words. Thank you for our friends. Thank you that you provided even moments like this to debunk us of the myth that we, we can do this alone. Lord, I pray that you would help us muster the courage to again try to be honest and courageous with our own life. Lord, that we'd be less judgmental about our feelings. We'd be less, less critical about our weakness. Oh, Lord, give us the grace to live with things that we don't quite understand. Oh, Father, give us the, the patience to, to not know something. And by your Spirit, give us the courage to know when we need to act promptly. And when we're buying the idea that we believe we have more time than maybe we do. Thank you for a way out. Thank you for the concreteness, the tangibleness of your table, of your body and your blood, which anchors us, which we can count on, which is our firm foundation.
Amen. We invite you, as we always do, to participate in, in this part, which I was praying, this, this part that sort of anchors us, this habit we have of remembering Jesus, of recreating and re-experiencing that part which we know to be true for sure, that his body was broken and his blood was shed. Tables open to all who want to receive and are willing to receive. Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you, and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you, which is the sign of the new covenant. The brown cups are the wine, and the whiter cups, the lighter cups, are juice. Jesus said, this is the new covenant. And the new covenant is the one that dispels that ubiquitous human myth that a relationship with God is up to your good works. Because Jesus said the new covenant is that he will do this for us. He'll make a way, so we invite you. On my right, there is juice and a gluten-free option, if that's what you need. At the beginning of the letter we looked at today, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and he called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen.